1570, WWNN Pompano Beach, and WKIS HD2, Boca Raton, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. What you want to know. What you need to know. This is South Florida's Health and Wealth Radio, AM 1470, WNN. Imagine me, a dog, moving in with a human. I didn't know how it would work. Turns out, my human's pretty entertaining. For instance, every time I give my human his ball, he throws it as far as he can. And I'm like, dude, that's your ball. So I go get it. But he just throws it. Again. I gotta say, though, the more he does it, the funnier it is. I love my human. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. The opinions expressed on the following sponsored program are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of this station, its staff, management, or sponsors. Welcome to Best Stop Trafficking, your best voice. Hosted by Linda Sullivan, certified master coach for victims of human trafficking. In fact, BEST stands for Building Empowerment by Stopping Trafficking, specializing in aiding the victim to pursuing and prosecuting the trafficker. And now, here's Linda. Hi, this is Linda Sullivan, and I am here with my co-host, Etty Foodman. Hello. And I'm here with Sarah Sullivan from Northeastern University. Hello. And we want to welcome you to Your Best Voice Radio, and it's brought to you by Building Empowerment by Stopping Trafficking. Our listener call-in number, 888-565-1470. Today's Best Voice Radio show topic addresses fraud, coercion, and money laundering. Alarmingly, in communities across and beyond this country, these terms are common household terms and are directly related to human trafficking. Today, we are pleased to have as our esteemed guest, Attorney Jeff A. Nyman, whose offices are in Fort Lauderdale. Our esteemed guest is a trial attorney who focuses on white-collar defense and litigation and other areas. A former federal prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice Attorney General's Honors Program to an assistant United States Attorney and Trial Attorney for the Department of Justice in South Florida and in Washington, D.C. Mr. Nyman not only received national recognition for handling complex matters, but he was awarded the Attorney General's John Marshall Award for Outstanding Legal Achievement. Please join me in welcoming Jeff A. Nyman. Hi, Jeff. Hey, g- good morning. Good afternoon, I guess. Thanks, Linda, for having me. Well, are you ready to deal with our listeners and talk about all the things you're an expert in? Bring it on. <laughs> okay, first, before we do that, I want everyone to know what your website is and how they can reach you because you are exactly the person they're going to want to be speaking to. That's great. I have a website. It's www.j. N-E-I-M-A-N-Law.com. It's jnymanlaw.com. I'm in Fort Lauderdale. My office number is, if you need to get me, 954-462-1200. But please call on the 1-800 number, 888-565-1470, with whatever questions you have regarding white-collar fraud and how it applies to uh, to you and your issues. Okay, here we go, Jeff. 
A source of tension specifically related to globalization is the emergence and alliance of organized criminal networks. Organized networks have some of the following traits. Their goal is to make money by supplying illegal goods such as drugs, weapons, human organs, and prostitutes or sex slaves. Some of the means that they do this is through extortion, protection, corruption, murder, or money laundering. Can you tell our listeners, please, in the legal sense, what actually constitutes money laundering? Sure. It's actually money laundering, as we see in TV and movies, is not really what it is legally. We think of simply just moving money, whether it's drug proceeds, uh, from one, one bank account to another, that boom, you got money laundering. It's actually not the case. It's actually a lot more complicated under federal law. In order for there to be money laundering, you have to have an underlying crime. The underlying crime can be something as simple as drug dealing, like, like I just mentioned. could be uh, sex trafficking. It can be mail and wire fraud, which are common theft statutes here under federal law. Uh, it could be a variety of, uh, of, uh, of crimes, and what they're called are specified unlawful activities. And the United States Congress lays out what these specified unlawful activities are and says, look, if you are engaged in one of these underlying crimes and then you engage in a financial transaction, which is designed with the intent to conceal or to promote whatever the underlying crime is, you've committed money laundering. When I was a federal prosecutor, I used to try to avoid charging money laundering in any case I could because I think it's more complicated than most people think it is. And when you're a prosecutor, your job is to simplify the world, to make it simple for the jury to understand what somebody did was right, what somebody did was wrong. And money laundering, I thought, kind of complicated the issues, but it is without a doubt a huge tool that the government uses now because they're able to get assets and seize assets that are related to money laundering crimes. Wow, and that's like amazing because I don't think all of our listeners understood that there were underlying crimes. We hear money laundering, we think... Hollywood, <laughs> you were right. You actually fixed it. I know Eddie's got a question for yeah, you. Yeah, Jeff, uh, I have a question for you. If money laundering is a set of financial transactions dedicated to hiding the source and destination of proceeds with the intent to reinvest into the legitimate business, it would appear that money laundering is the heart of global crime. Have you found that it is easier to locate the illegal proceeds at the placement through banks through layering stage or at the integration stage when the funds come back into legitimate economy? Look, the name of the game for the criminals is to hide and to conceal and to prevent anyone from tracing their tracks. And what they do is through various means. They'll use shell corporations. They'll use nominee companies. They'll use whatever multiple bank accounts they can to start moving money from location to location to location. As a, as a, when I was a federal prosecutor, we relied heavily on the Internal Revenue Service, on the FBI, on the, on the DEA to help us with the administrative uh, investigative tools to go out there and find money. I could tell you we had the most success usually when the money left the United States or was the original source or when we saw it coming in or being spent because when you saw the house being bought or the car being bought or the piece of artwork being bought you're able to trace back a lot easier where it is that the money originated and then you have to go back and say well what was the underlying crime that may have been committed here and what was the financial transaction that was engaged 
And actually, coming into what you've just said, there was a case in Seattle, I believe the Jerome Eugene Todd case, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but where one of the counts was actually a charge of conspiracy to engage in money laundering. 19, that involved, yeah. yeah. 1956-ish, yep. All I had to do was say the word, and yeah. he <laughs> knew it, okay? <laughs> which actually said the use of proceeds from the conspiracy to engage in sex trafficking to promoting the activities, but the use of the proceeds included renting rooms at motels, apartments, and purchasing cell phones, and so on. Uh, what would have had to be proven in that case to meet the criteria of money laundering? Well, well, well look, you got to keep in mind here, the, the term financial transaction, which is in the money laundering statutes, is as vague as vague can be and as broad as broad can be. Like so many federal laws these days, you don't know when you're stepping into uh, a, a gray area or not because they're so broad and so vague. But financial transactions are basically any dealing, any, any transaction, any use of money, whether it's the spending it to, to do something that's totally unrelated to the crime, so long as it's done with the intent to conceal or promote the underlying activity. In this case, it would have been the, the uh, sex trafficking. That has nothing to do with kids' allowances when they take 20 bucks and hide it from the <laughs> yeah. camera. I'm sure there's a, go- a government prosecutor after summer who will find some way to stretch that and to get the federal nexus and, and, yes. give, and give the hook. They, 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 they seem to be all over the map these days as far as well, where they have, a, 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 I guess, a, a bone to pick with you or not. But, yeah. That's right. Okay, Eddie, go for it. Eddie, you've got one. Yes, I do. If the criminal funds were tied to support the lavish lifestyle of the person in can you explain to our listeners how our friends at the IRS would get involved? Uh, they, 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 well, one, friends in IRS. I'm not sure I, I use those <laughs> words together all that often. Uh, but but, but the, the IRS is just another investigative uh, agency out there who, if there is... Tax, or if they're tax proceeds that, that haven't been paid, they're going to go in there and they're going to try and get their day in court. They're a glorified creditor. They can go lean. They can go levy. They can go garnish. They can do all these things um, that, that, that most other creditors can't do. But, but in the money laundering world, where, where the government really has its muscle is in, in, in forfeiture, in criminal or civil forfeiture. And that's very different than the IRS or another uh, investigative agency going in there and seizing property. They can, as long as the government can show or can tie uh, the property which they're looking at as being bought directly or indirectly with proceeds of the fraud, it could be forfeited and seized by the United States government, whether it's a house, whether it's a boat, whether it's a car. So if you're in your car and you drive up to an ATM and you pull money out of the ATM and that money was bad money and because you're using that car in furtherance of the crime, arguably... The government can come up with some argument that the car is being used to further the crime, and they're going to go seize that car. Now, and it'll take the money you get out of the ATM as well. <laughs> so, 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 so they're they're. they're limitless as far as the forfeiture power. It's, it's kind of um, an area where the government, especially in times when, when everyone's tightening their belts, uh, they're, they're trying to beef up their forfeiture efforts every which way. They're seizing money, and as long as they can show some tie to some criminal activity, you don't even have to be charged. There could not even be an underlying criminal case pending. There could be a civil forfeiture where they just say, look, here it is. We see money. We see a house. We think it's connected to a crime. We may not really be able to prove that crime beyond a reasonable doubt in a courtroom before a jury, but but we can prove it by a preponderance of the evidence maybe before a judge. Boom, they're going to take it. 
So we should alert all the gas stations out there not to fill up the cars that have the intent to drive up to the ATM, <laughs> <laughs> so on and so on. Yeah, it's full of gas prices right now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're going to just seize the gas tank right now. I think. Exactly. <laughs> Sarah, I think you have a question. Yeah, Jeff, um, how can lower-level bank tellers detect money laundering schemes? I, I think that's a, a great question because the, the banks are the gatekeepers here. The, ba- the banks are the face-to-face with the customers who are dealing with the transactions. There's all sorts of requirements on, on, on bank employees and banks to file certain paperwork with the government whenever they have suspicious activity. If they see suspicious activity, they have file something called the suspicious activity reports, and they, they are to look out for certain, certain things. So let's say a guy walks into the bank and is pulling out cash, maybe $4,000 at 8 a.m. and then at 10 a.m. another $5,000 and then another $6,000 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's going to trigger all sorts of alarms at the bank because he's trying to keep stay below what's a $10,000 threshold, which is going to require a, a report to be generated by the bank. Banks have huge compliance departments. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. And what they need to do, especially in the post-September 11th world, is they are required to know their customers. It's called Know Your Customer Regulations. Bank employees from the ground level up ask for IDs, ask for jobs, job descriptions, ask for sources of money. They need to do their scrubbing. They need to do their homework to make sure that the person they're dealing with isn't, a, isn't up to no good. Do they always, always, are they always successful? No, of course not. Well, but that's why that's why I have a job as a criminal yeah. defense lawyer now. So yeah. yeah, and actually, when I go into the bank, I'm going to hire you to walk in. Yeah, I'm going to go quite that far. But yeah. Hey, I, we have Jim from Miami. Jim, do you have a question for Jeff? Uh, I've heard people talk about something called a fraud triangle. Uh, can you explain what that is? Uh, what context are you hearing that in? Because it's quite frankly a term that I am not familiar with. Hmm. I don't know. I just heard him speaking, uh, you know, when I, about money laundering and things like that. It just came up in conversation. I didn't really know what it was. Jim, I think you're talking about uh, the rationalization, the motivation, that triangle where um, if there's fraud, there's actually going to be the perpetrators actually going to say, okay, I can rationalize my crime and I have the motivation to do my crime and this is how I'm operating it. I think that's exactly what it is. It's more of a uh, forensic coined term to be put out there so that uh, forensics can go in there and do an analysis for the attorneys that they work with. So the attorneys would actually get the report, and I believe that's what you're actually talking about. It's almost like a hierarchy of needs if you were in the social or the COSO format. Well, well, yeah. well look, the, the the intent and the mentality of of, of the fraudster is, al- is always fun to, 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 to look at and examine. Uh, greed is a pretty limitless uh, motivator for a lot of folks out there who go out there and think that they are going to be able to get away with whatever it is that they are, which kind of, fraud comes in all shapes and sizes, right? From the big to the small to the complicated to the simple, you, you, you name it. And the motivating factor almost always is greed, is needing money, wanting money, depriving someone else of money. Great. Does that help? I think we lost. I think we lost. But I hopefully we helped them. <laughs> okay. So, Eddie, um, I'm, I'm going to actually ask a question if that's all right with you. In the Trafficking uh, Victims Protection Act, okay, labor trafficking is defined as the recruitment, harboring, transportation, uh, provision, or obtaining of a person for labor or services through the use of force fraud or coercion for the purpose of subjection to involuntary servitude, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. 
That's the word for that, That's something that only would come out of our United States Congress. <laughs> exactly. So on that note, can you assist our listeners in understanding this type of fraud, like how that would fit in with, say, trafficking and this coercion? Yeah, yeah, look, fraud, like I said, is just deceit. It's dishonesty. It's lying. It's, it's, it's some false pretense that is being used in order to deprive somebody of money or services or property, whatever it may be. Uh, in, in the sex trafficking world, you throw in the concept of coercion there, which, again, another uh, broad term where, where simply f- putting fear in somebody to do something is enough to, 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 to get over the hump, statutorily at least, to prove a case where a, a subtle threat or even a direct threat uh, in order to force somebody to, 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 to take an action with, with, relating to whether it's labor or services or, or, or sex is going to be enough there. But but as far as where fraud goes, there's, it's all about the lying. It's all about the deceit. Going on what you just said, can you help me and our listeners understand a subtle threat? Isn't that difficult to prove? Of course. um, Look, it's almost... It's real difficult to prove. But but you know what? Throw in circumstantial evidence. And juries, when they're sitting there listening to cases, are directed. Circumstantial evidence, which is not an eyewitness saying, I saw person X on the street corner robbing the bank, but it's someone about... Ten minutes later, seeing somebody with a mask that was seen in the bank with a gun and with a bag of money. Yeah, he wasn't seen at the bank, but there's pretty good circumstantial evidence that they were the one who robbed the bank. Circumstantial evidence is just as good as direct evidence. Juries are to look at it and weigh it, and just as they would the eyewitness, direct eyewitness. But so, circumstantial evidence to, sh- to prove a subtle threat, whether it's the victim saying, "Look, this is what was implied to me. This is this is what I took it to mean." I think that's going to be enough, especially with these gruesome cases when they get before a jury, if they ha- ever do in, in the sex trafficking world. And if the masks are not on Halloween, then we're all ready <laughs> to go with that. But also, um, if I say there is that implication, and you're you know out there, and you're the witness, and you're trying to say, "Okay, I saw the person with the mask." Do they put much credibility? Do you believe on the witness? Or um, will that help? Does the witness itself have a bearing on that implication? Huge. My my job now right now is always evaluating credibility. I'm looking at what the government will be able to prove and what won't they be able to prove. What has the government looked at? What evidence hasn't the government uncovered? What homework have they not done? And I'm going to try and make the witness the trial. You want to divert the attention. And the credibility, though, is key. Because if you don't have... The credibility, if the jury doesn't believe the person who raises their hand and swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help them God, the, 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 there's going to be an issue where, where, where they, 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 they're going to want to hear. But, but these sex trafficking cases, I think the victims are going to go in there with every benefit of the doubt. I think they're going to go in there, um, and, and, and the jury's going to want to believe them. They're going to, they're going to, and it's going to take, I think, a lot. For, for a defense lawyer to come at them and, and, and totally discredit what they say, especially because there's always going to be some corroborating evidence. There's going to, whether it's uh, injury or whether it's police reports or, or, or I, other eyewitnesses, no prosecutor, if they're doing their job correctly, is should be walking into a courtroom with a case that's dependent on one witness's story. They need to build that story. They, everyone's one piece of the puzzle. 
and and I think that's kind of where the credibility, though, of of every witness collectively is what is what's going to carry the day. Before we take um, the next question, will you tell us one more time about your website and how to reach you? Because you are like, obviously, you know your stuff. And it's a good thing that you know your stuff because welcome to Best Voice Radio. (laughs) No, look, again, thanks for the invite. Nine years as a federal prosecutor, now in private practice for some time, helping folks who find themselves in the difficult situation of dealing with the federal government. Stressful times, without a doubt, for them. I, I, I like to hope that my experience helps them as uh, as uh, uh, get get through these situations. But yeah, my website jnimanlaw.com, j n e i m a n law.com. Okay, we have Steve from Palm Beach. Hi, how are you? Hello, Linda. I, I just have a question to ask. You uh, said, or Edward said, that the government could uh, take away the money from the corrupt uh, actions. Uh, now, what happens to that money, and could an organization like Best then apply to some of that money, since they might be the ones that alerted the government about what is going on? Could, could Best get part of that money? Where does that money go to? Go, Jeff. <laughs> Tell them to give it to Best. Yeah, no, I, I, I wish they could. I, w- I really wish they could. Now, there are, each agency has forfeiture funds, and, uh, and, and the money goes into the forfeiture funds of the agency that was the investigative agency that led to the actual seizure and collection of the funds. Now, are there private uh, private um, groups and private charities out there who maybe can get some pe- piece of that pie? I, I, I think it's through community outreach, a lot of these agencies do have such programs. But there are whistleblower programs out there as well, whether you're with the Securities and Exchange Commission or with the IRS. Um, A lot of work I do now is representing whistleblowers who have information about fraudsters, whether it's if it's a securities transaction or if it's someone who hasn't paid their taxes for years and years and years, there's high threshold as to how much money, unreported money there could be. But someone who blows the whistle, and if Best has information or anybody out there has information about wrongdoing and an agency acts on it and the agency collects money on that, the whistleblower can get a chunk of change. And we're not talking small money. We're talking between 15 and 30% in the IRS uh, whistleblower program of, of tax that's eventually collected by the, by the government. So there's a bunch of hurdles you got to get through. But I, I, look, I, I think charity uh, organizations like Best who, who are devoted to, to, to great missions uh, sh- should have every opportunity they can to get get some of this money, but a lot of it is going to be up to the agencies at the end of the day. And the federal governments right now are not in the benefit, not in the business of handing out <laughs> a ton of money, unfortunately. Right. We yeah. have thank you, Steve. That was great. We have Steve also from Miami on the line. Hi, Steve. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. Sure. I have a, a question regarding some nonprofits, and I know they have outreach programs, and then they have victims that come in and talk to them under the auspices that whatever they say is confidential and the person they're talking to is not a lawyer or a priest or anybody. Um, you know, what happens in that case? Does the person listening ever have to testify? And if it said that, is that some kind of fraud? I, I, I think that's a really good question, and it's actually a de- delicate one. I know there are some privileges that apply in the medical context, in the medical field, but they may not apply if the person's not an actual physician and the person's not giving medical advice. So having the attorney there involved, and the attorney can then retain whatever experts the attorney needs to provide legal advice, which all of a sudden is going to take a communication, which otherwise may not be privileged between uh, an individual and a psychotherapist or a coach or, 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 or whoever, an accountant, if it's in the tax setting, whatever it may be, and turn that into a privileged communication 
communication, so long as, and this is a big, big if, so long as that communication stays within legal, the legal advice or with, with in, in furtherance of legal advice, which, again, well, it's another broad concept that creative lawyers, we can stretch and make, make I, mean a lot of things. I have a question as a, as a tail end to this great question. Um, if, in fact, you find out that this person, the advocate, has uh, said, hey, you know, it's confidential, and the victim, you know, tells their story and ends at the end of the day, it's not confidential, and the advocate is then called in to testify and re-traumatize that victim, is that fraud? It, 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 it's, it's, that's a really <laughs> tough one. I'm not, I, I really am not sure how to, how to go with that, but, but, but I think... You, you need to hope that when someone goes in there and, and, and they're truthful and they're complete and therapist is out there looking out for their best interest. But, but if it's not a therapist. But, but if it's not in the best interest, then, yeah, we got an issue. There's going to be an issue there. We have Jessica from Miami on the line. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I was referring to um, a caller that called in earlier, and you were talking about the monies that were collected and who gets to keep the money. Oh, don't best. He said best gets it. <laughs> right. don't, don't you think it's, it's dangerous and you're giving the wrong message to the traffickers and the money launderers that, that it's only about the money and that if, as long as we collect the money, they, they can absorb that rather than serve time in jail and it all becomes about the money? Oh, I, I think that's a very valid point. But it's, it, I think going after someone's pocketbook, someone taking away the, the profit that someone got from a fraud or from, from a sex trafficking or whatever the crime is, is, is one of what I think is going to be multi-layers of deterrence and, and, and punishment that should come into play. Prison, without a doubt, in some cases, is appropriate um, and necessary. Um, so I, I think when we talk about the taking of the money, we're just talking about one of, of several ways in which the government is trying to deter and punish these folks uh, from, from, from committing these acts, these horrific acts. So actually make it a cost to their business. Yeah, and look, uh, you, you have many folks out there who kind of weigh the, uh, the, 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 the pros and the cons of how much money am I going to get if I commit the fraud versus how much time am I actually going to do? And if the government doesn't have the ability to go out there and take the, the, the money that they got, there's a lot more folks who are going to be willing to, to, to w- do that balancing test and say, it's worth, it's worth committing the fraud if, I, if I'm going to get to keep the money at the end of the day. Wow. Eddie, I think you have a question? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, the role of the forensic accountants is, re- is recognized across the globe. Best coaches are trained in forensic processes. Do you believe that since money laundering is linked to fraud, human trafficking, and other economic crimes, that these forensic skills can make a difference by helping law enforcement and investigators and attorneys in bringing crooks to justice? Without a doubt. Uh, I, I used to, when I was a prosecutor, uh, we used to follow the money, follow the money, and follow the money. Well, what better way to show intent, which is the key to any criminal case? It's where the government, I think quite right now, is stretching in a lot of their prosecutions out there where they're assuming intent without being able to prove intent. And that's that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the key to any criminal case. But but, but I, the forensic accountants are going to be able to help tie a lot of those loose ends that are going to allow be able to in, enable investigators to to, to 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 trace the money and show at the end of the day who's the one pulling the strings because the one who's pulling the strings is the one who's making the money. And that's why we love best coaches who have the best forensic accountants who come on board and get trained in the coaching skills as well. And when they just put it all together with the forensic skills and they get certified and they work and work with the lawyers and we do it. Sarah, you've got a question, I believe. Yes. um, Jeff, oftentimes in sex trafficking, victims are promised 
good job opportunities in different countries. Um, this turns out to be lies usually, but the victim will initially consent to go with the trafficker um, to a new country or to follow a new opportunity. Does the fact that victims often initially consent to accompany their traffickers factor into sentencing for fraud? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, I think if there's the uh, false misconception out there that, hey, come, come with me, I'm going to give you the uh, the American dream or the, the, the Russian dream or wherever it is that they're going to take these folks, we're going to get you the high-paying job, you're going to live in a nice house, and it's all a complete and utter lie. That's, without a doubt, going to be something that is going to come back and uh, when it gets before the, the, the sentencing judge, He's not going to like. Uh, he or she's going to look at that as an aggravating factor. Now, the sentences in federal cases are kind of all over the map these days. We have something called United States Sentencing Guidelines, which lay out certain um, offense levels or points depending on what actual crime was committed, and there's aggravating factors which go into play to determine whether or not points should be increased, and there's some mitigating factors that come into play that would decrease the amount of points. And then you look at a, 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 an individual's uh, criminal history is this someone who's been in trouble with the law time and time and time again? They're going to score higher on, on on this chart, or is this someone who's in trouble for the first time? And then the judge is going to get like an advisory range, and the advisory range is going to say to the judge, based upon this, these calculations, this person should be sentenced between eight. Well, we'll just pick a number out of the air: eighteen and twenty-four months. Well, then. The, the, the government can come in and say, well, look, that's the advisory range. That's just advisory, Judge. You need to also know, here's all the true nature and circumstances of what this individual did. We think this range is inappropriate. We think this range is low. We think this range is, is inadequate to, 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 to sentence the, the, the perpetrator in. The defense lawyer's job uh, is, is to come in and say, yeah, but the, the, here are additional nature, the additional factors that you need to be looking at. My guy has never been in trouble with the law before. He did this for charity. He, he volunteered here. Wh- whatever arguments you can make. So you, you end up with this, this, this really the struggle where the judge doing, doing what he or she's appointed to do is going to sit there, weigh all the factors, and come up with the appropriate sentence. But the more egregious the underlying facts, the more difficult the argument uh, I, as a defense lawyer, have to, to, to keep my, my, client, uh, my client's exposure to jail down. Wow. Now, following on uh, Sarah's question, the term fraud has come to actually encompass many forms of misconduct. But in the end, all of the acts involve a violation of trust. That violation can be more harmful than the financial loss itself. Can you explain to our listeners and to your co-host here, <laughs> why there is such a need to actually educate the general public about the pervasive threat of occupational fraud? Yeah, no, um, just to piggyback on yeah. a bit to the, the sentencing guidelines, one of those enhancements that's in the guideline book is something called abuse of trust. And there is actually an increase under the sentencing guidelines if someone betrays some trust. If somebody, um, whether it's a financial trust, whether it's emotional trust, you, you see it more often or not where you have like like a, um, a a lawyer who's in charge of an escrow account, and then they then they betray that trust and spend money where they're not supposed to. That's that's called theft. Uh, the, 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 there's an abuse of trust there. There's going to be an increase. So so I think it's certainly a concept that that, that is important. Uh, that that's going to carry and dictate sentencing at the end of the day. Going back to what you just said, 